Church, would you please stand with me as I read today's passage. We're three weeks in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 1, and this week we're in Luke 1, 39 through 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Amen. Amen. This is God's Word. The passage starts off with that phrase, in those days, in which days? Well, it's referring to the days described in the previous passages in Luke where God sent his powerful angel Gabriel to two individuals. One, the first one, was a priest, an older priest by the name of Zechariah. He and his wife Elizabeth, she was barren, had no kids, and God appears to him when he is in the temple praying and says, your wife is going to have a baby, and this baby is going to be a great prophet. He's going to be filled with the Spirit, and he will be the forerunner who prepares the way for the Messiah. That was the first visit. And then the second visit, the same angel, Gabriel, comes six months later, and this time appears to their relative, Mary, a young Jewish teenager, and says, Mary, you're going to have a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit, a virgin-born baby, and the Spirit is going to overshadow you, and, and the baby born in you will be the Messiah, the King, the Savior of the world. In those days, Mary went with haste to see Elizabeth. She would go about 80 miles about three days, uh, somewhere in the hill country around Jerusalem. By the way, if you go to Israel at some point, it is so hilly. The first time I went to Jerusalem and Israel, I thought, no wonder. I bet Jesus was so fit, man, walking around all these hills. It is the hill country, even more than the Austin area. So she goes with haste, and as soon as she gets there and shouts out her greeting, three things happen. We see it in 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Heard the greeting, baby leaps, she's filled. Three things happen once. You know, that uh, baby leaping in her womb, that is unusual. I hear a lot of moms talking about who are pregnant, their baby moved or their baby kicked, but I've never heard one say, my baby just leaped for joy. 
I mean, what was that like? I mean, that baby must have really moved, and the Spirit must have communicated to her that that was a leap of joy, of celebration, and either God had already told her what was going on with Mary, or He did at that moment, and uh, this baby leaps. Now, I'm going to pause from the story for a few moments, then I'm going to come back. Here's a rabbit trail. The passage is not on abortion, but isn't it fascinating that this is a fully human person who has emotions like joy, who leaps, who we see elsewhere in the passage is filled with the Spirit? I mean, he's clearly a person. I mean, a a blob of tissue doesn't feel all of that, doesn't uh, have those kind of responses. And church, The Bible does not deal directly with abortion. It just assumes that from conception, we are, of course, human. What else would we be? And we're human persons from conception. And we Christians can disagree about all kind of political issues, but this is not a political issue. It is a biblical issue, it is a theological issue, it is a spiritual issue, and if we are followers of Jesus Christ, there's no option. And I think that the outcry by the church, as loud as it is in certain circles, is not loud enough if we have seen millions of these precious little unborn babies Persons, persons. Okay, back to the text. Alrighty, baby leaps with joy, and Mary and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. What's that mean? That's a little bit spacey. That's a little bit, I know you've heard me talk about it a lot because we just were in Ephesians, and maybe the key passage to understand what that's all about is in Ephesians 5.18, but do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, drunkenness uh, while living, but that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, be filled with God. Now, that subtle clue in that passage kind of alerts us to what it means to be filled with the Spirit. If you are filled with alcohol or drink too much alcohol, someone might say of you that you are under the influence. And that is a clue, that to be filled with the Spirit is under the influence of the Spirit. That is... It is the Spirit who is directing our, our, our decisions and our actions and our words. It's not other people. It's not self, but it's the Spirit because the Spirit has filled us. We empty ourself, our own self-will, so God can fill us with the Spirit. It's a, it's a matter of surrender. It's a matter of dependence. And it's so emphatic after Acts 2, because this is what happened in Acts 2. God pours out His Spirit on the church, the early church, and it begins the age of the church, and it's also the age of the Spirit. You and I live in the age of the Spirit. And the Christian life really is the Spirit life. It is life in the Spirit. So much so that I would say that 90% of the frustration in the spiritual life is probably right here. So many Christians feel like a failure 
because I just can't get over that addiction or that uh, anger or that temper problem or that lust problem on the internet or one of those sins that they're bothering. They just lack boldness. They lack joy. And I think the problem is, is that so many times we are depending upon our own power and trying hard. And that just doesn't get it. The Christian life is a supernatural life. We need supernatural power. And so why don't we do this? Why don't we say, God, I cannot change my temper. But you can. Would you fill me afresh with your spirit? Because in the New Testament, power and the spirit go together. You should receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Acts 1.8. Power and the spirit go together. And so it's a matter not of trying hard, but of emptying yourself and depending upon the power of the Spirit. Now, one of the things about Luke's gospel, more than Matthew, Mark, and John, is that he so emphasizes the power of the Spirit in our lives. Can I just show you a few things in Luke 1, the very first chapter? And and the age of the church hadn't even started yet. But in chapter 1, verse 15, Gabriel says to Zechariah, He will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Again, personhood. But he'll be filled with the Spirit, because God's going to use him. And then, in verse 35, last week we saw that the Spirit said to Mary, Gabriel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the child will be born, will be holy, Son of God. Now, uh, track with with the text there that God says this young teenager, is she 15? That she's not sleeping with her boyfriend, her fiancé, Joseph. And he says, this is how you're going to have this baby. The Holy Spirit is just going to overshadow you. And there is such power there. There is such power with the Spirit that he is going to impregnate you with the eternal Son of God who created the galaxies. And the eternal God who is spirit will become flesh, a single-celled fertilized egg in a Jewish teenager's womb. The power of the spirit and the wonder of Christmas. And then... Thirdly, in verse 41, our passage, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then later, fourthly, verse 67, her husband, Zechariah, who initially didn't believe all this was going to happen, and God made him silent. Uh, When John, the baby, is born, we read, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied, saying. And that's just in chapter 1, before the age of the church, the age of the Spirit. Now, the next couple of chapters, Jesus is a boy and then the genealogy in chapter 3, and then chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read one more verse. That's the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 1. Notice he starts his ministry in the power of the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 1, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit twice in the one verse. Do you think God is telling us 
This is how Jesus lived his life. This is how the early church in the book of Acts lived their lives. This is how we must live our lives. It's urgent. The power of the Spirit. And the first application point for us in this passage, because never do we study God's Word just for a little bit more knowledge, but for, Lord, how can we respond and obey to you? Then, boy, it just ought to seize us. Lord, I have got to depend consciously and deliberately and intentionally on your spirit and not myself. And it's counterintuitive. Okay, filled with a spirit. Now, God is also telling us that Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit. Now she's going to say four statements. And he's telling us these are from God. You know, this is not just Elizabeth talking. This is from the Spirit. Four statements, and that's the rest of the passage. First statement in verse 42, blessed are you. Elizabeth talking to Mary, this young teenage relative. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She knows, doesn't she? She knows that Mary is either pregnant or about to be pregnant with the Messiah. Let's be clear about the Messiah, what that term means. Old Testament term is Messiah. New Testament equivalent term, Christ. When we say Jesus Christ, we're not saying his first name and his last name. We're saying Jesus the Messiah. Both terms in the Old Testament and the New Testament mean he's anointed one, which is biblical terminology. He's the chosen one. He's the one chosen by God. So we're saying he is the coming chosen one. And the Old Testament unpacks this. The king, the savior, the ruler, the one who would deliver his people. They thought it was political deliverance, but it's spiritual deliverance from our sin. He is the divine Messiah. So Elizabeth understands that. She gets it. And so she says to this young teenager, blessed are you among women. There's never been a woman like you, Mary, because you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. And blessed, favored by God, the fruit of your womb. Blessed so much. Okay, second thing she says in verse 43. This is even better, I think. She says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, that oozes humility. How can I be so fortunate and blessed that the mother of my Lord would come and be in the same room with me? Wow. Now, that is just something because, I mean, think about it. Elizabeth is 55, 60, 65 years old. Mary is 14 or 15. Elizabeth has been the wife of a priest, and now she's pregnant in her barren old age. She's 60 years old or so, and she's pregnant, six months pregnant, and wow, everybody is talking about that. I mean, she's got all the limelight. And then this young teenager shows up, and she is not the mother of the prophet of the Messiah. She's the mother of the Messiah. How's Elizabeth going to handle that? Because all the attention is going to shift from Elizabeth to Mary. And she's only 15. Will she be jealous? Will she be full of envy? Will she be angry at God? God, finally I have my time. And look, Mary shows up. How will she handle it? She could not be more thrilled. Such humility. You see, Elizabeth was a woman of God, and she got it that it wasn't about her. It wasn't even about her baby. It was about that baby. 
Because that baby came to save us from our sin. But that baby, and she got it. And people who walk with God get something about life. It's not about you. It's not about yours. It is all about Jesus. And so the second line of application from this passage is right here. That all of us have got to be challenged by Elizabeth's response. It is not about us. It is all about Jesus. If we claim to be a disciple, then then we're living for Jesus. We lie low and exalt Jesus. That that is, we give up the incessant self-centeredness of our culture. And no longer will we be self-centered but Jesus-centered. No longer self-preoccupied but Jesus-preoccupied. No longer self-intoxicated, but Jesus-intoxicated. Because He is our Lord and our God, and He came to save us from our sins. And we get it. And we get it. You know, there's a sequel to this profound humility that Elizabeth shows. It's a sequel when her baby is born, grows up, and he begins his ministry. And this is what happens. He goes out in the desert... And he is such a powerful, the Spirit of God was upon him so strongly in his message and his words that people started coming to him from miles and miles all over the country, all over Jerusalem. They would come out to hear John speak about the coming Messiah and to get baptized for repentance. And the crowds were just coming. And he was talking about the Messiah is coming. I'm not he, he's coming. And then Jesus comes, the Messiah. And all the crowd started going from John over to Jesus. Does that remind you of something? All the attention shifts from John to Jesus. Now, good men and women can't handle that, have not handled that well, losing the limelight. How does John respond? Because his disciples are all flustered about this. They come to him and say, Master, all of the people are leaving and going to Jesus. How does John respond? Well, in John chapter 3, there is this profound, classic example of humility. The disciples come to John complaining about Jesus is getting all the attention. And then in John 3, 27, John replies, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So that's saying every single good thing you and I have ever received, John was clear on this, came from God. Then he says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him to point to him. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. And he uses this picture of a wedding and says, Jesus is the groom. The people, the church, us, we're the bride. Who, who is John? He is just the friend of the groom. And when the friend of the groom hears the voice of the groom, he is thrilled with joy. In fact, he has been thrilled with joy about Jesus since he was in his mother's womb, hasn't he? He's always been about pointing to Jesus from his mother's womb. And even he says, now, You think I'm worried about the crowds? I could not be more thrilled. He must increase, I must decrease. 
Church, no wonder that Jesus later said of John the Baptist, among those born of women, there's been no one greater than John the Baptist. And that tells us the heart of God, that God will get close to the humble and lowly, but he will know the arrogant and the proud from afar. And so that pride and arrogance that we all wrestle with, it's got to go. It's got to die. And we've got to take the stance of Elizabeth, the stance of her son John. He must increase, and I must decrease in a very profound way. That's the third thing. Fourth thing. No, that's the second thing. Third thing. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. I've already mentioned that. Now Elizabeth is telling Mary, not only did he leap, but he leapt, leapt for joy. There's the joy. Later in John 3, as an adult, I rejoice at the bridegroom. Time to celebrate when there's Jesus around. Now the fourth. And I think the most important. Elizabeth says to Mary, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now she's referring to what Gabriel said to her, but it came from the Lord. So this is, Mary, you believed what the Lord said to you. Now, can I connect that with the verse, two verses earlier, 43, when she, said, when she says to Mary, how privileged I am that the mother of my Lord is here, came to me. So that little impregnated, fertilized, one-celled human being is the Lord, the same Lord who commissioned Gabriel out of heaven to go do his bidding. He's the Lord. And Elizabeth gets that. You are the mother of my Lord. And then in verse 45, said, Mary, you believed him when he sent Gabriel to you. This is what God said to him, if you are here last week, in verses chapter 1, verse 35. This is what Gabriel had said that she believed. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And she had just asked, how am I going to have a baby? Because I'm not sleeping with Joseph. I'm, I'm a virgin. How's that going to work? He says, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to make you pregnant. Now, it is one thing for you and me to believe this and, and know this. No big deal. In fact, almost a yawn because we've read this every Christmas for years. But Mary never read this book, never read that passage. And she believed it was going to be true because God could do it. God could do it. And Gabriel goes on, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary took it to the bank. She believed it. She believed that when God said something, that she could count on it, that it was true. She took God at his word, and God loves that. All through Scripture, from Abraham right through the end of the Bible, God loves it when his people are daring to believe what he says he means. And that we can keep it, he can take him at his promises. This is high Christology, friends, high Christology. And the Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And that if you don't trust God, if you don't take God at his word, it's impossible to please him. It's the, kind of the essence of unbelief. Lord, I don't really believe you, that you're good, that you care, that you can do it, any of those things. It's unbelief. Mary, though a teenager, uh, a regular person like you and me, she believed God's word. And God's heart for you and to me is the same as what Elizabeth says to Mary. Blessed are those men and women at Wood's Edge and the kids too who believe that what God says to them will happen. That what God has promised in His Word, you can count on because great is His faithfulness. Great is His faithfulness. So, God said this thing to Mary about the virgin birth. What is He saying to you and to me? Let me tell you just a few of the things that he is saying to you and to me. He is saying in Psalm 103:11 that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Do you feel, okay, I mean, get that, try to picture that, high as the heavens are above the earth. I mean, that's, we're talking pretty much infinite. So great is his love for you. If you do not feel crazy loved by God and enjoy his love, then there is a defective belief and faith in the word of God at this point. To some extent, we're not believing. And I know this can be a struggle. I've struggled plenty with it. But this is what God says to you and to me. That as you, you think you're loved, as high as the heavens are above the earth, Philbert and Hannah, I love you. And that is true of every one of us. Are we going to believe it or not? God is looking for people who will take him at his word. Or the very next verse, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Now, is that true? Well, let me say this. If you are struggling over guilt because of a past divorce or a past failure in parenting or a past failure in your spiritual life or some addiction, and if you're wallowing around in guilt and just Satan has you just, you know, kind of under his thumb of guilt, then that is a failure to believe the promise of God that if you are in Christ, he has taken all of that sin and he has moved it from you as far as the east is from the west forever. And that's why we celebrate communion every week. Yay, God. Yay, God. What else has he said to you? Well, he said to you in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always to the end of the world, to the end of the age. So you get the diagnosis of cancer. So you get this devastating news about your child. So you're scared to death about your marriage. You're in excruciating back pain. Uh, yes, that is hard, but you know that Jesus is not off there somewhere in heaven. He is right here with you. And that makes all the difference. What else has God promised you? Well, he's promised you this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is his common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation, we'll provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Now, what's that promise is that you don't have to sin in any given circumstance because no temptation is common to, uh, taking you such common to man. God's faithful, won't allow you to be ten balance you're able. With the temptation, provide the way of escape also so you don't have to do it. 
Now, contrast that to the condemning, accusing voice of Satan that you've struggled with pornography all your life, maybe, or for a long time, and you just hear that voice, oh, you've got to do that. That's just who you are. What a lie. Or you just got to lose your temper with your kids from time to time because that's just who you are. Or you just got to be unforgiving because that's just how you were raised. Friends, Satan is not God. God is God. And he says to you, you can say no to sin. So the next time you're in a tempting situation like that, tell Satan where to go. And pull out this verse. And say no to sin and the power of God. And don't kid yourself. I just got to do it. What a crock. So many other promises. So many others. But you know, the life of faith is largely a matter of taking specific promises that apply to specific situations and claiming them. It's not a generalized thing. It's, okay, in this circumstance, this situation, I hear Jesus' word to me in John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled, Jeff. Believe in God, believe also in me. It's taking specific promises that apply to your challenging problem. However, if you're not in this book a lot, you don't know those promises. And that's why it is so crucial that every day you may not get to the Internet. You may not get to Fox News. You may not get to something else. But you get to the Word of God because these are the words of Almighty God necessary for our life like oxygen is to breath. And you soak in it. You meet God in it. Now, some of you commute an hour, and I know your time is limited, and you work long hours. Well, while you're commuting down there and back, don't be on sports radio or some other kind of radio. Put in a Bible app like Bible.is, dramatized reading of the New Testament, free app, um, thousand languages, and, and, and marinate in the Word of God, and it will change your life. It will change your life. Church, for all eternity... You cannot live by faith because you will be living by sight. This is your one option to become a man or woman of God. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. This is your one option. And you're going to find that not in the good times and the easy times, but in the hard times and the tough times. How are you doing? God is looking for men and women at wood's edge who will dare to live by faith. That will not happen apart from daily soaking in this book. Stand with me, please. Lord, help us respond to you in obedience. Fill us with your Spirit. May we lie low and exalt Jesus. Lord, may we be like Mary and we believe that what the Lord says will, be, will come true. And we believe it. Mm. Mm. Friend, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, it is a matter of humility to humble yourself before a holy God and say, Lord, I need a Savior because I've messed up big time. Come and save me, Jesus. It's a matter of humility. Do it now. Do it now.
Lord, we bless you.